For some of us in the U.S., conversations about Palestine and Israel are unfamiliar, uncomfortable, but having some context can go a long way. Yesterday, we heard from two Palestinian Americans on how violence in Gaza has shaped their lives. Today, we're talking with an Israeli peace activist and academic who supports an immediate ceasefire and a longer-term solution through an international democratic process. People that are affected should make decisions, but the international institutions that we have are not working based on democratic principles. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Shimri Zamaret is a lecturer and researcher in international and comparative studies at the Donia Human Rights Center at the University of Michigan. Shimri's an Israeli citizen, and he came of age as a peace activist in the early 2000s. And he spent time in prison as a conscientious objector. His activism has led into scholarly research on global conflict, specifically the Middle East. He's working on a book right now called The World is Broken that's set to publish in 2025. Shimri Samaret, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Can I just ask uh, how your family and friends are doing? Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's very affected. Um, you know, there's one of my best friends, is a cousin, uh, her husband uh, died in the Gaza attack, and her uh, children were both are now hostages uh, in Gaza, captured by Hamas. And um, yeah, I have friends both in Gaza and the West Bank that are very affected as well, Palestinians. And my family is in Israel, um, and you know, there's a few a few times a day there's missile alerts, and you need to run for shelter like the, a room in the house that's more secure, typically. Um, there were no schools for a, a long time, so you know people were dealing with all of that and <laughs> needing to explain what's going on to their kids. So as you can imagine, I mean, it's a, it's a lot. It's kind of like, a, I, I think it's, it's a, a bit like a, a 9-11 moment in Israel, especially the October 7 attack in terms of people's feelings of it. So that's how I think for Americans, that's a good way of understanding where people are in terms of their feelings, their emotions. In the early 2000s, you lived through the Second Intifada. And that was a Palestinian uprising that led to thousands of deaths on, on both sides. And at the time, you were part of this movement of youth in Israel who refused to serve in the army. Do you mind telling us about that decision and how it sort of set the path for the research that you would come to do? Yes. Um... So like you said, I, I research uh, conflicts and how they're affected by the structure of global governance and how um, activist social movements um, shape global governance. And But this comes from a very personal place for me. I was part of a, of a movement, uh, a peace movement of, of young, um, essentially peace activists, human rights activists, um, who said, we, are feeling, we wrote a letter to the prime minister and we said, we do not want to take part in the the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. We know it's against international law. We don't want to participate in war crimes and what human rights are telling us are war crimes. And um, we're willing to pay the price for that. And uh, and indeed, <laughs> we did pay the price for that. 
Can you say what, what the consequence was for people who, who declined to serve? Yeah, so this was in the height of the Second Intifada, and there was a big movement of essentially conscientious objectors, uh, refusers, uh, a lot of groups, not just young people like us, but also of um, people that already served pilots and uh, combatants and so on that refused, and, and they wanted to make an example of us. So they put us in prison. Uh, until then, it was typically three months, and they changed the policy, and the, f- the five of us uh, that were part of this movement ended up spending the longest time that any conscientious objector in the history of Israel spent, which was uh, 21 months, so almost two years, uh, in different forms of military, a prison, a civilian prison, different forms of arrest. So I had a, an interesting, you know, at the age of 18, I, I definitely had a you formative went, experience. You went to prison, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I went to different, a lot of different prisons, you know, met a lot of interesting people. Um, and um, I mean, it's kind of weird to say it, but I feel like for me, this was a very po- empowering experience, um, something that was very meaningful. It's even very weird to say that, but some of the happiest times in my life were in prison because, because I felt that I was doing something very meaningful for justice. And although it was hard, I was able to do it kind of like climbing a mountain where, you know, like it's very hard, but you you really believe in what you're doing. Or I mean, it's not like climbing a mountain, but yeah, but it was a very important experience, a formative experience. Um, And I also, when I was there, I kind of, yeah, started to think about the research that I'm doing now. and thinking about the, the, the world system and, and the world as a broken thing um, and something that could potentially be fixed um, and thinking about the conflict as a kind of a symptom. You, uh, you're working on this new book right now based on research that you've been doing with your time in Michigan that looks at the structure of global governance. And your premise is that the conflict between Israel and Hamas is a symptom of, of a really dysfunctional United Nations system and the Security Council. Can you say more about how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. So I I was looking, when I was in prison and when I was coming out of uh, prison, I was looking for a way to analyze what I was seeing, uh, to, to understand the conflict as a symptom. I was seeing there are similar conflicts in other parts of the world, and I was seeing that it was the kind of the heydays of the the of the anti-globalization movement, anti-corporate globalization movement. In you know, there were protests in Seattle against the IMF, and I was feeling when I was reading about all of these things, you know, the World Trade Organization protests, um, that th- this is very related to what I was experiencing in in Israel uh, as an Israeli and with the Palestinians, and I wanted to put it into into words. I, I, I didn't really maybe know what the question, maybe the question was, what, what's wrong with the world? You know, why is this kind of things happening in so many places? And so I kind of went on an intellectual journey that led me to studying um, how world politics work. So my uh, way of understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that it's not democratic. You know, this, the, the conditions that Palestinians are living under is not democratic. Um, they're controlled by the Israeli government, but they cannot elect that government. Um, And so I was looking for a similar way to understand the international system. And that led me to doing a master's in the School of Economics with two of the leading experts on global governance in Europe at the time, David Held and Mary Caldor. I found there was a lot of discussions happening in 
the academic world about how international decisions are made, how the UN system was created, um, how the Security Council, why it works the way it does, the mechanisms that we created to deal with things like climate change, like uh, conflicts, and and why they're undemocratic, essentially. What happens when you bring that toolbox to this region and, and these people and, and this set of constraints? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so, the, so the book is exactly, is essentially that. It's a, it's a, it's a way to kind of to talk to normal people and to activists, uh, a, more, a, a bit of an intimate conversation about these ideas that happen in, uh, in, usually in the academic space. And essentially, if you kind of summarize it in two words, it's that we need the conflict, the Israel-Palestinian conflict is a symptom, and the solution to it is international democracy. This is such an interesting uh, lens to look at this through. I feel like in the past couple of years, a lot of public debate has focused around, you know, sort of the post-World War II understanding of the powers and, you know, British British governance and British occupation in Palestine, the founding of the state of Israel, and I've heard much less about the UN's role. As you're as you're putting the book together, are you suggesting that these are these are related things? Yes, absolutely. So the UN was created. The UN is the center of the post-war system. So the system that was created, the international system that was created after the Second World War, um, and what you had there is essentially the victors of the war. So. Uh, the U.S. and Russia and China and France and the U.K., they won the war and they created the post-war system and they gave themselves all the power uh, in the U.N. So if you look at the Security Council, for example, they, each of them have a veto of these five superpowers. It was they, the winners of World War II. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but we live. But the problem, you know, the, the huge problem, the bad news is that we're living in a very different world to the world that we lived in in 1945. So we have things like climate change, you know, and mass atrocities that keep happening and um, financial crisis of a new nature and pandemics and all of these. The biggest problems that we face in the 21st century, we the tools that we have were created in 1945 and they were built in a way that's just prevents them from changing, from reforming. And also in a way that's very undemocratic. You know, we believe in giving power to the people that are affected by decisions. If you believe in democracy or, you know, in a republic, that's what you think. People that are affected should make decisions. But the international institutions that we have are not working based on democratic principles. We need to take just a short break. When we come back, Shimri Zemirat talks about what a democratic United Nations could look like and how we need to have these conversations, even if they're hard. Stay with us. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity, committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Thank you. 
Shimri, could you maybe give us an example of ways in which a UN decision has has, you know, given rise to unintended consequences in the region? Yeah, great question. So, you know, if you look at Palestine and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, what you're seeing is, on the one hand, the U.S. government sheltering Israel when it's doing things that human rights organizations are calling war crimes. So it's veto. The U.S. just a few weeks ago vetoed a decision in the in the U.N. Um, to stop Israel from doing things that most other countries and most other most people around the world think are unjust. And at the same time, you have Russia vetoing decisions on Iran and on on Hamas. So you basically have two superpowers sheltering war criminals on both sides. Um, and who suffers are the victims of these war crimes on both sides. So Israelis suffer, Palestinians suffer. And they have that power because in 1945, they won the Second World War. But that doesn't make sense because we live in the 21st century. And so the solution is to democratize these institutions, to make something like the UN democratic. Um, and that's what the book is about, um, is how do we make uh, the, the UN and and other international institutions democratic. What would it mean to make them democratic? And what's the methodology? How does democratic change happen? How can normal people take action that leads to institutions becoming democratic? Well, give us a taste of it. What would it look like to modernize the mechanisms of the United Nations? So I talk about three things in the, in the, in the book. Um, the dictatorship of veto, the dictatorship of funding, and the dictatorship of the executive. The dictatorship of veto is what we just talked about. So the fact that Russia and the U.S. and China have a veto power to essentially protect who they think the governments, who, th who the governments think should be protected, not the citizens of these countries. But, um, and so ending the veto... Um, and the veto works in many different ways in different places and different organizations have different forms of this veto, but ending the veto would be a democratic uh, alternative. The dictatorship of uh, the executive is the fact that only governments have a voice in international organizations. So, for example, I didn't vote for Netanyahu as an Israeli citizen. Um, his government... Um, was voted by other people, but in a majority. But as a minority in Israel, I don't have a voice in the UN. You know, when if you didn't vote for Biden or for Trump, their uh, administration is what represents you in the UN. It doesn't matter uh, if you didn't vote for them. But if you look at the, you know, Michigan, uh, the legislator, or if you look at an arbor at the, at the legislator that we have, or if you look at the legislator in Washington, D.C., we minorities do have a vote and do have a voice in those, in, in those institutions, right? Even if, if you're not in the majority. So including, for example, parliamentarians that belong to the minority, representatives of the minority in the U.N. would be a very democratic reform. And there's, for example, the proposal for a United Nations Parliamentary Assembly is a really interesting um, uh, initiative in that direction, suggesting to create a kind of a, a UN House of Representatives where you would have both minorities and majorities represented. Oh, boy. I mean, this is a subject that has in the past decade proved extremely complicated here in the States. I mean, is there any reason to think that it would be different if we applied that kind of structure at the UN? Right. So, I mean, I think as hard as it is, you know, the, the U.S. institutions in many ways are facing many problems, but they are so much more functional. The U.S. Congress is so much more functional than the U.N. is. I know it's hard to believe it, but there can always be worse. So I think if you think of, uh, yeah, and I mean, nobody, if you tell them, let's stop having 
a House of Representatives. Let's just have one state in the U.S. having a veto power or over every decision or a few states that have a permanent, people would tell you that's a horrible, you know, we shouldn't do that. But that's the system that we have in the, um, in the U.N., the good news and why this is an optimistic book is that I really think there's ways we can fix the world um, or this Jewish concept of tikkun, to repair the world. This is, this is a fundamental uh, concept in Judaic uh, uh, cosmology and philosophy. Tikkun, yeah, repair, yeah. this idea of repair. There are a lot of people here in the States right now who are finding themselves drawn into conversations that they, they may not have had before about the Palestinians, about Israel. And, you know, there are plenty of people who have a personal connection here in Michigan to what's going on. And there are a lot of people who are trying hard not to just get, get stuck in uh, an overly simplistic view of what's going on. You're from Israel. I mean, you've this is this this is a country that's been having this discussion in real time in a very fractious way for a long time now. Do you have any any thoughts or advice for people who are trying to negotiate conversations about what's happening in their own lives, either if they have ties in the region and very strong feelings or are just trying to think this through while they're reacting to the human tragedies that are playing out? It's surprising to me as somebody who lives in the U.S. but grew up in Israel, how hard it is to talk about Israel-Palestine here. In many ways, it's easier in Israel to talk and to say critical things really? on all sides uh-huh. than it is in here. I'm on the, on the board of this organization called Refuser Solidarity Network that does solidarity work with war resistors and peace activists in Israel. So... I mean, I think one really great way is to is to just follow the discussions that are happening in Israel and the voices that are coming out of Israel. Because I think sometimes when critical voices are coming out of Israel, it's much more easy to make those statements uh, in the U.S. Uh, debate. You know, if you can say, well, actually, also, I'm not anti-Semitic. Um, actually, a lot of Israelis also say these things. For example, that you know we need a ceasefire, or that you know what's happening in Gaza, according to human rights, is our war crimes and what the Israeli government is doing, and also what Hamas did were war crimes. And so I think for the people that are struggling on the side of how can I say these things um, in a moment that, in many ways, reminds people of 9/11. I think, first of all, that it's important to have hard conversations about things, even if it's hard. Um, And I think that we need to remember that the victims on both sides are basically who we should be thinking of and protecting. Do you remember the first time you heard the phrase from the river to the sea in the context of Palestinians being the ones who are saying it? It's really a really interesting question because... Actually, I mean, yes, I've heard Palestinians saying it, but it's also a very common phrase for Jews to say. So, for example, Beitar, um, which is essentially the Likud or one of the forces that created the Likud, the ruling party, their hymn um, includes the phrase from the river to the sea. The, the Jordan River has two banks and both of them belongs to us. Mm-hmm. And so and then you have the maps, you know, like the, the maps of between the Jordan River and the sea. The, the, of what is called the full Israel. And then you have both Palestinians that are arguing this is all belongs to us and Jews that are using the same, almost similar map 
where both the territories are. So it's essentially the way I would understand it is kind of like, you know, it's people that are saying the whole territory should belong to us. Um, and again, I think it's important to remember that it's on both sides that there are people saying that. Hmm. I think that nuance is kind of lost on a lot of us here in the States. In recent days, I know you know, one of our congressional representatives from Michigan, Rashida Tlaib, has been the target of uh, a lot of attention. Uh, people saying that this is essentially something that radical Palestinians have used as, as a suggestion of wiping out the Jewish state. Does that context have any resonance with your understanding of what's actually going on in the region? First of all, let me tell you, as an Israeli and as a Jew, I absolutely stand in solidarity with Rashida, and I, I absolutely support what she. I, I think the attacks that she's facing for basically saying what I, yeah, I believe is our right views and just views is is just ho- horrible and completely unfair. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know, you know, like I, if I understand correctly, this was shouted in demonstrations. So you know. People shout slogans in demonstrations and they might believe the thing to mean different things. So, yes, it could be that some of the people that shouted that in the demonstration wanted Israelis out of uh, what they believe in Palestine. The same way that people saying that Jews are saying that want Palestinians out of what they believe is Israel. Uh, And essentially that's an argument for ethnic cleansing, right? And again, it's worth to remember that there are voices on both Palestine and Israel that are saying these things. I think a lot of people that also say that, talk about, they just talk about democracy, right? They're saying that if I, it was Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. And so they refer to, you know, the, it's, it's a contested term. Some people call that area Palestine, some people call that area Israel. So for them, when they're saying Palestine should be free, they're talking about that area and they're saying it's free in the sense that they believe it should be democratic. So it's the same thing as saying, you know, like from the river to the sea, Israel will be free. You know, so it's like, it, and, and it's, it's more about their belief in a one state solution and a democratic one state solution. You know, that's a kind of difficult thing, right? People criticize that and they say everybody believes in ethnic cleansing. And I think maybe some people that are saying that believe in ethnic cleansing, but other people just believe in democracy and, you know, like a non-ethnic centered democracy. So I think like with so many other things on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's just really important to have a nuanced view and listen and, and talk and kind of not shout at each other. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've you've looked at a lot. You've looked at global conflict from a lot of different angles. If somebody is suggesting that a certain phrase is coming loaded with, uh, you know, with ethnic meaning, well, it, does, it means this to me and it means this to me. <laughs> what tools do we have to look at what's really going on? I think you should ask them, first of all, like, okay, you said this thing. What do you mean? And then listen to what they say. And if you don't agree with that, have a conversation. That's my kind of maybe naive take on it. No, but I think like, you know, Jewish verse for peace, for example, when they're saying that in their communication, I think people should ask them, what do you, I don't know if they say exactly that, but when they're talking about anti-Zionism, what do you mean? What's the content of anti-Zionism? From what I'm hearing from Jewish voice for peace, I actually think what they call anti-Zionism, a lot of people in Israel would call Zionism. So the terminology that you use, gets confused a lot. So I think it's really important to ask people what they mean in the words that they're saying and also maybe for people to explain what they mean, not to assume that other people understand what the slogans mean. 
we should respect that other people have different views and that are valid and listen to them and just have a conversation about it. Shimri Samaret's new book, The World is Broken, will publish in 2025 from Beacon Press. You can actually pre-order the book right now. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. Please do join us on the web if you are ready for more listens. Our newsroom's Brianna Rice has been talking with a number of different people lately about what that phrase, from the river to the sea, means to them. You can find it on our website, michiganradio.org, right now. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa, our podcast editor. Other producers on the show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Olivia Meridian, and our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Thank you so much for listening, and have a safe weekend. We'll see you Monday.